Good morning. Good to see you guys. You know, oftentimes, when God brings two people together and joins them as man and wife in marriage, they bring into that marriage all sorts of wild expectations and different opinions on all sorts of things. Let me ask you, is that true of your marriage? Let me ask, do you and your spouse ever have disagreements about how things should go? No, of course not. Oftentimes, when a man and a woman are joined in marriage, they bring into that marriage wildly different expectations and expectations on how marriage could go. It could be in the area of finances, of who handles them. It could be in the areas of discipline of the children and how the discipline will be handled. That oftentimes lead to some, leads to some of the biggest arguments within a marriage is how will the children be disciplined. It could be regarding the holidays and how will you celebrate them. Is it permissible to open a gift on Christmas Eve? Or is that taboo in your house like it's taboo in my house for some reason that I still, 24 years later, don't understand? Never will understand that, but whatever, I just do what she says. (laughs) But maybe, maybe the area with the largest differences of understanding and expectations is in the area of sex. Many young couples enter into marriage with wildly different expectations on what sex within marriage will look like. Maybe some of it is just by osmosis on how their parents talked about it or didn't talk about sex within marriage. Some of it, of course, is ingested through the culture's constant teaching of sex through media and television and whatnot, the vast majority of of which is undiluted garbage. But what happens is until until couples are honest with each other and openly discuss their sexual union, a lot of struggles and a lot of issues can persist. Because sex is a powerful reality, is it not? In each marriage, it's a hugely powerful reality. It has, it has the power to deepen and strengthen a marriage. Of course it does. But it also has the power to bring great discord and devastation within a marriage. And more often than not, when two people come together in marriage, they have different views regarding sex within marriage. And by the way, so does our culture. Some see it, in our culture, simply as a physical appetite. And we talked a little bit about this last week. It's simply uh, a biological drive. Others see it as simply about procreation. It's not about enjoyment. It's not about pleasure at all. It's simply about the propagation of the next generation. And the third view within our culture is the biblical view. And that is sex within marriage is a purposeful and pleasurable gift from the Lord. It's not simply about physical appetite. It's not simply about procreation. The Bible presents sex within marriage as a purposeful and pleasurable gift from the Lord. And here's what I want to do. Before I look at those three views, and we're going to examine each one of those views, before I do that, I want to start by laying a foundation on what the biblical uh, presuppositions are of our bodies and our sexuality. And these, uh, uh, there's five of them, and I'm going to move through them really, really quickly. There's five built-in biblical presuppositions that I'm not going to argue for. I'm going to assume them because they all come out of Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 3, and we just spent a year in the book of Genesis. So I shouldn't have to argue for these. I'm just going to assume them. But they got to be in your mind. They have to be in your mind anytime you come to the topic of marriage and sexuality. So let me give you the five. Here's the first one. First, God created us as male and female in his image. Male and female in his image. Men and women share equally in the image of God, which means they are equal in dignity, in honor, and in worth. 
We're equals, but different, right? We're equals, but different. We're made to complement one another. So first, God created male and female in his image. Second, God creates marriage, and marriage is seen throughout scriptures as a covenant relationship between one man and one woman. We see this in the story of Adam and Eve. God brings Eve to Adam, and they enter into marriage. God joins Adam and Eve together as a one flesh union. So marriage is seen throughout the scriptures as a marriage monogamous relationship, a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for life, who've covenanted to God and to each other to love and support one another. It's a promise of a future love. It's a promise of a future love, right? Meaning, I love you now, of course I do, because I'm saying I do right now in, the, in this moment. But I'm also promising I'm going to love you in the future. Even when it, it hits the fan in our marriage. I'm going to love you then as well. So God, so God's design for marriage as seen throughout the Bible is for a male and a female to be joined together in a monogamous relationship that lasts them till death do them part. Third, God created sex. Have you ever thought about this? God creates our bodies and he calls them very good. He creates male and female with parts and pleasures and he did it that way on purpose. On purpose he did it that way. It wasn't an accident. He made males, he made a man's body with certain parts that would bring him intense pleasure. And he, brought, he made females with parts that would bring them intense pleasure. And after Adam and Eve was married, it wasn't like God took a break and decided to go get a cup of coffee and donuts and looked down and said, hey, what are they doing down there? It, he was not shocked when he saw Adam and Eve engaged in sex. He created them as sexual beings with unique body parts, and he said it's very, very good. And the reason that sex is pleasurable and really, really fun Anybody denying it's fun? If so, we should talk afterwards. Do not tell it right now. Do not nod. <laughs> Don't do anything right now. Just, we should talk later. The reason that sex is pleasurable, fun, and wonderful is because it's a reflection of the loving goodness of God. It's a reflection of the goodness of God, who created it as a gift for us to steward and enjoy. Fourth, like every other area of our lives, sex has been corrupted by the fall. That's the fourth built-in biblical presupposition. Sex has been distorted by, by the fall. Sex was designed within marriage to be this God-honoring, whole self-giving love that brings no shame, that brings no remorse, that is not exploitive in any way, doesn't exploit a person in any way. But because of the fall, sin, which is ultimately a disordering of the heart, our sinful hearts now want to use sex for selfish reasons. Which is why outside of sex, or outside of marriage, sex oftentimes brings with it shame and remorse and exploitation of the worst kind. So like every other area of our life, sex has been corrupted by the fall. Fifth presupposition then, is that our sexuality, like every other area of our life, needs to be redeemed. Does that make sense? If it's been corrupted by the fall, then our sexuality, like every other area of our life, needs to be redeemed. Because our heart values, it has gotten really quiet in this room, I've noticed. Our heart values have been distorted by sin. But one of the effects of the gospel is the restructuring of our heart values, which means, here's what it means, our sexuality can actually be redeemed as our view of sex is renewed in our minds, which also then means one of the healthiest things that churches can do is not to shy away from the conversation of sex, but to actually engage the topic. Because we want people to be healthy holistically, individually in their lives, but also healthy holistically in their marriages. So you can't shy away from the topic. You can't shy away from the topic of sexuality, but actually engage it with the certainty that the gospel can actually restore the most broken of sexual pasts. Does that make sense? Okay, so those are the biblical presuppositions. Now, what I want to do for the next 
30 minutes or so, is walk through the three views of sex in our culture. The three, the primary three views of sex in our culture. And those are that sex is simply a physical appetite, sex is simply about procreation, and the third view is sex is a purposeful and pleasurable gift from the Lord. So first, sex is simply a physical appetite. That's the first one. Um, Some see sex as nothing more than a biological drive. And we talked about this a little bit last week. I don't have, a, a, I don't have the time to go into it super in-depth today. If you weren't here last week, get the, get the, I guess it's not a tape anymore, is it? Um, whatever, however you listen to messages, get, get it that way. Um, but it, a lot of people see it as nothing more than a biological drive. They would say in the past, sex was once surrounded by a taboo. And it was um, closely protected. But we now realize, they would say, in our infinite wisdom, in our very modern wisdom, that sex is nothing more. It's a lot like eating or any other good and natural appetite, is what they would say. And if that's the case, if it's nothing more than just a good and physical appetite, well, then that means we're free to fulfill the appetite however, whenever, and with whomever we want, whenever we want. There's no reason why we shouldn't sample a variety of cuisines and continually look for new taste sensations. If sex is simply a physical appetite, that's exactly where the line of reasoning is going. And by the way, that's an increasingly popular view in our culture. And those who would hold it, those who hold it would say, forbidding the satisfaction of the natural appetite, it's not only impossible, it's also unhealthy. It's like trying to deny yourself eating for years at a time. You've got to just express yourself. I was born this way. Now, we talked about this last week, that sex is indeed a biological drive, right? It is a biological drive. We can't deny that. And it is an appetite. There's no doubt about that. But it's not remotely in the same category as the biological drives for food, drink, and sleep. Because food, drink, and sleep, as wonderful as those things are, they don't have the power to connect you to them interpersonally. But sex does. Which is why, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul forbids Christians from having sex with prostitutes. He says, in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, you don't need to turn there yet. He says, do you not know that a person who is united in intimacy with a prostitute is one body with her? Interpersonal, connectedness, right there. He says, your body belongs to the Lord, but you're you're giving it to another person. You're being interwoven with another person anytime you're having sexual relationships with them. He goes on, he says, for it's said, the two shall become one flesh. Keep away from sexual immorality, for you don't belong to yourselves, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So Paul says, you shouldn't have sex with a prostitute. Why? Here's the reason why, because sex is the ultimate expression of the interwovenness of our lives. It's the ultimate expression of the interwovenness of our lives, emotionally and physically. And I said this last week, I'll say it again here. Um, Sex makes us feel personally interwoven and joined to another human being. And again, it's the reason why um, it's the reason why women who don't receive a phone call the next day oftentimes are offended by that, that they haven't received a phone call. But if sex is simply a physical appetite, if it's nothing more than a biological drive, the man has no moral reason or social responsibility to call you in the morning. And again, we can pretend sex is one thing, but intuitively we know it is so much more than that. It's, it is a biological drive, but it's more than that. And by the way, studies show um, that a certain percentage of men, a certain percentage of men, can have sex without much emotional involvement, but it's not a very high percentage. So even if they say sex is no big deal, the vast majority of them, uh, they know it's a big deal. And they can't detach themselves from it like they project that they can. They know it's a big deal. So yeah, sex is a physical appetite. It is a biological drive. There's an element of truth within that. But the Bible rightly insists, and we'll see it in a moment, the Bible rightly insists that it's so much more than that. 
It's so much more than simply a biological drive. It's so much more than simply a physical appetite, which means, here's what it means. It means the Bible has a deeper and ultimately a more satisfying view of sex. So one view, that's just one view. One view in our culture is sex is simply a physical appetite that should be satisfied with whenever and with whomever. That's a prominent view in our culture. Now, as an overreaction to that, are you guys still with me? Okay, as an overreaction to that, the other view is that sex is simply about procreation. Sex is simply about procreation. The first view is held by a large percentage of people in our, in our culture, that sex is a physical appetite. That's held by a large percentage of people in our culture. The second view, that sex is simply about procreation, that's held by a large percentage of people within the church. That sex is simply about procreation. That's held by a large percentage of people within the church. And a lot of the reason for that is because of Greek thinking that came from Plato and not Paul. That's a problem. Anytime you bring Plato into the church rather than Paul, you got a problem. In Greek thought, um, there was the concept of dualism, and we've talked quite a bit about this as we've worked our way through 1 Corinthians. But the concept of dualism is there's a higher, more spiritual nature, which is then distinct from our lower, more physical nature. And the higher spiritual nature, the spiritual is good, they would say, the immaterial is good, while the physical is bad. So there's dualism there. And then sex, therefore, is seen as a part of our lower physical nature. And sex by, is then simply a necessary evil in their minds for the propagation of the human race. And that's all it's there for. And Platonic thinking made its way into the church, which is shocking because Jesus came in a physical body, was resurrected and lives in a physical body and promises eternal life with him in a physical body to all those who believe in him. But that, that slips right on by because the philosophy, the Greek philosophy was platonic. And within the early church, this negative view regarding sex, it was rooted into the church and based on the writings of some famous church fathers, Tertullian and Ambrose and Jerome, all said this, that the only reason to engage in sexual, uh, sexual intercourse was for the procreation of children. And if you mix that in to the Stoic way of thinking, the Stoic way of thinking that said pleasure itself is bad, well then, you got a recipe for disaster. And the church taught that you can have sex if you have to. <laughs> yeah, go get married. And if you have to have sex, it's only for the procreation of children. And while you're having sex, for this purpose only, you can never enjoy it. Well, thank you very much. This is why, and I'll get in trouble for saying this later. Maybe we'll block this out from the radio. Um, but this idea, this is the reason why Queen Victoria, she famously, she had a, a gathering of Christian ladies, and she famously instructed the Christian ladies of, in her realm to lie back and think of the empire. <laughs> I can't believe I just said that. that <laughs> but if the purpose is simply procreation, and it's not about pleasure at all, then what she instructed right there is absolutely true. Lie back and think of the empire. That's the only reason for sex. And that attitude, that attitude toward marital intimacy, it dominated the church for more than 10 centuries. And this view still persists in a great many churches to a large degree. I remember my wife went to a little Christian college, or we both went to the same Christian college, and in one of the chapels she attended it, I didn't, praise the Lord. This was the view that was taught in the chapel service that day, is that is sex was only for the procreation of children. I quickly said, I don't think that's actually true, honey. We need to talk about this. Um, but this was one of the views. And therefore, because this, this view has dominated the church for 10 centuries, the church has become a little bit prudish regarding sexuality. Have you noticed that? Yeah. And what's interesting about that is the Bible is anything but prudish regarding 
sex. The Bible actually celebrates sexual passion and pleasure. Turn with me, if you haven't yet, um, well, you probably haven't, I haven't told you, Proverbs chapter 5. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs 5, it's in the Old Testament. It's right after the book of Psalms. So if you open up smack dab in the middle of the Bible, turn to the right after that. And Proverbs is right before the book of Ecclesiastes. Proverbs chapter 5. Last week we looked at the first section of Proverbs chapter 5 as we were talking about sex outside of marriage and and the father's advice was stay away from it. Stay away from adultery. It's going to ensnare you and it's going to eventually lead you to death. So he says... Don't engage in sex outside of marriage. But then he turns in verse 15 and he says, but by all means, (laughs) by all means, engage sex within marriage. Look at what he says. Verse 15, and this is all poetic, but you're going to pick up on the imagery really, really quickly. Look at what he says. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed (laughs) and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Now listen, this is not Stoic philosophy. (laughs) This is not platonic thinking. God's word is encouraging husbands to let their wives' breasts fill them with delight and to be intoxicated in sexual love. Now turn over to the Song of Solomons. Song of Solomons, 60 pages forward in your Bible about. And Song of Solomon is a series, what it is, it's a series of love songs between a husband and a wife. It's very sensual, it's very poetic, and it opens up with the bride desiring the passionate embrace of her husband. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. I'll go to verse 2. The bride confesses. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Now notice this, she, she desires his touch, which she values above even sweet-tasting wine. All of her senses, all of her senses are attuned to her husband, and she wants to be totally absorbed. Again, this is not Stoic thinking. This is not Platonic uh, philosophy. This is the Bible. She calls on her husband to come to her and to take her away, to take her into his chambers. And it's This is pretty amazing. I mean, you guys don't look like you're amazed by this. But think about this. This woman, throughout the Song of Solomon, is astonishing, especially considering in light of its ancient origins. She is, it's the woman, not the man, who is the dominant voice throughout these poems, who's initiating this. Turn over to chapter 5. Verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 10. Again, she sings. She says, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full, a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid mirror. His arms are like rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked 
with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Now notice, again, she's the one who seeks. She's the one who pursues. She's the one who initiates. She's the one who boldly exclaims her physical attraction. So this is no shy, shamed, mechanical movement under the sheets. These are two lovers enraptured by sexual love. And again, it's, just note this, it's the wife who takes the lead and initiates. By the way, when I'm talking to young married couples, I will often tell the wives, you want to tell your husband you love him in a way that he can understand at a heart level? Because men are kind of slow. I don't know if you've noticed this. But some men are a little bit slow and they have a hard time grasping things. One of the ways you can tell your husband you love him at a heart level is by you initiating sex as often as he tries to initiate sex. Right? That's a really clear way for you to communicate to your husband. You, you, want, you want your husband to understand that you love him in a way that, you, you, that he'll understand. You verbalize it, of course, but if you want to connect it to his heart in a real profound way that he'll say, oh, my wife really loves me, then seek to initiate sex as much, if not more, than he does. That's a really clear way for a guy. You see, the Bible's not prudish about sex. And Christianity doesn't see sex as inherently dirty because God made our bodies into matter, physical bodies. He created sexuality and he gave man and a woman to each other in the beginning. He says, this is a good thing. By the way, let me say one more thing here. Guys, to the husbands in here, let me note this as well. And this is equally as important. Song of Solomon also says something to you about the importance of context. You know what context means here in this situation? Most guys live by the idea in marriage, anytime, any place. Context does not matter to most men. Is this not true? If you're married, you can go ahead and acknowledge this. Context means very little to you. I have always lived by the policy in regards to sex in my marriage, anytime, any place. You give me a look. You don't have to speak to me. You don't, you don't have to do anything. You just give me a look and I'll, I'll take the cue from there. But context to a woman is everything. Context is king. And I'm not talking about candles and flowers, although that can't hurt, I'm sure. I'm talking about most women need to be prepared emotionally with warmth and conversation and affection, things like that. And you actually see that in the Song of Solomon because in chapter 4, the entirety of chapter 4, we don't have time to read it or we'll be here until 2 p.m., but the entirety of chapter 4 is the husband singing of his wife's beauty, describing her attractiveness from the head down, her eyes, her hair, her teeth, her neck, her, her uh, cheeks, her breasts. And this intimate talk, all of it is the prelude to physical intimacy. And so a wise husband, a wise husband will understand that context is key for his wife and will try to connect with her at that level, not just to get sex. Well, then why? If it's not just to get sex, well, then why? It's to honor the wife of his youth who is created also in God's image and God has joined them with him permanently to honor the wife of his youth. Now, now listen right here. I want you to see these two views. So one view, mainly our cultures, says that sex is simply a physical appetite. And again, there's an element of truth in that, but the Bible insists it's so much more. The other view, usually held by the church, is that sex is simply about procreation. Again, an element of truth. But the Bible again insists that it's about so much more than that within a covenant relationship. So you look at both of those views, the culture's view and the church's view, the church at large, their view, and both of those views are unsatisfying. They're found wanting. 
which means there must be another view. And there is. It's the biblical view. And the biblical view is sex within marriage is both purposeful, that's the procreation part, but also pleasurable. And it's a gift given to us from the Lord. And because it's a gift, just like any other gift the Lord gives us, his intent is that we steward it well. That we steward it well and we enjoy that gift. And that by doing so, um, we'd use it in such a way that it's glorious to him, but good for us within our marriages. And now turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because all of this is spelled out in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Oh my goodness, I don't have much time left. Um, you guys got anything going on from 11.30 to 2? Let's get going here. First uh, Corinthians chapter seven is where we're going to be. And first, if you know, if you don't know, if you're new to the Bible, new to Christianity, I love that fact. First uh, Corinthians is in the New Testament, so the second half of your Bible it's after the book of Romans. And uh, we're going to be working from verses one through seven in First Corinthians chapter seven. And what we're going to, well, I'll just read through it pretty quickly because we're running out of time. And. Uh, and we'll come back and we'll see what Paul says sex within marriage does for us. And he says three things that sex within marriage does for us. But before we get there, in verses 1 through 7, Paul will say these two things, and I'll just give them to you as, as, uh, as an outline. Uh, he, he will say sex within marriage should be regularly enjoyed. Regularly enjoyed, that's in verses 1 to 3. And then second, in verses uh, 4 through 7, he said sex, sex within marriage should be reciprocal in nature. Reciprocal in nature. That's in verses 4 through 7. So let's look at the text. Now, concerning the matters, Paul says, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Uh, hopefully your translations there have uh, quotation marks around that. It's good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. Is that true in your translation? There's quotation marks around there? Yeah, yeah, okay, good. Because that's one of the Corinthian slogans. And what the Corinthians, what they were doing is they were saying sex within marriage shouldn't be about pleasure. It shouldn't be about passion, but it should simply be about procreation, which again, it fits in with the Stoic philosophy and the Greek thinking of the day. And Paul's gonna respond to that, that line of thinking, the Corinthian slogan. And he's gonna say, well, that's actually out of line with the biblical teaching. And he'll say sex within marriage should be regularly enjoyed. Look at verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. And have there, by the way, um, it means have in sexual relationships. It means have your own wife. Uh, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. And you'll read that and you'll think to yourself, preach it, Paul, my man. Here's what I'm going to say. Uh, husbands, you're about to love Greek. You walked in this morning and you probably didn't, weren't really thinking about Greek. You're going to walk out of here thinking, I really do enjoy Greek. Greek is probably one of the best languages of all time. You see in verse 3 where it says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to, their, to her husband. In the Greek, that's actually in the present active imperative form. Is that not awesome? <laughs> you know what that means? That's not probably, you probably don't really care about that. But here's what it means. Uh, first of all, this is not a suggestion like you could take it or leave it, right? This is not a suggestion that you can follow or not. It's a command. It's, it's a command. He's saying this is something that you ought to make a continual way of life, and it's being commanded. He's saying this is, this is not a suggestion, husbands and wives, that you should have her and she should have you. No, 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 no. This isn't a suggestion. This is a command. So Paul's telling husbands and wives to be sexually active with one another as an ongoing and continuous thing. I told you you were going to love Greek. Present active imperative form. So Paul's saying to husbands and wives, you need to be on a regular, sec a regular diet of sex. Now he doesn't say, now please hear me on this. 
Save your emails. He does not say how often it should be. And he gives no parameters for that, meaning that's open for discussion and dialogue within each married couple. But it should be, the implication is, it should be frequent enough that neither partner is sexually frustrated. A wife might have a higher sex drive than her husband. Or it could be the other way around. Regardless, it needs to be discussed and agreed upon by both partners. And it should be frequent enough that neither within the married relationship is sexually frustrated. But again, each couple is, each couple is wired differently. And life has stages to it, right? But Paul's saying that sex within marriage, it shouldn't just be a sometimes food. You know what a sometimes food is? Sometimes food is something you have every six weeks, like a big old slice of cheesecake. He's saying sex within your marriage should not be like, like a sometimes food, like candy. But sex within marriage should be the meat and potatoes of your marriage. It should be, you should be on a regular diet of it. So he tells married couples to be sexually active and regularly enjoy each other's body. Now some may hear this, women may hear this, and they, they may think, at this point, well, Paul's just a chauvinist. He's just completely a chauvinist. And Christianity is nothing more than a good old boys network. And it's totally repressive to women. But you can't actually say that about Paul. Why? Because what he says next was revolutionary for women in that culture. Because what he says next in verses, in verses we'll look again at three, three through seven, is he says, sex within marriage should be reciprocal. It should be reciprocal in nature. Look at what he says. Look again at verse 3. He says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. And that's very ancient Greek thinking right there. But now what Paul says next drops the bomb. He says, Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Hmm. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. Paul says, if you want to refrain from sex for a period of time, um, not celibacy, he says, but if you want to refrain from a period of time, both have to agree to it, but then you must come back together again quickly. Verse 7, he goes on, he says, uh, I wish that all were as I, as I myself am, meaning um, celibate and single. And so he affirms the goodness of singlehood. Of singleness. He affirms the goodness of singleness. And we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks because in verses 25 through 35 in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, um, that whole section is on the goodness of singleness. And we'll talk about that in two weeks. Next week is uh, marriage and divorce. And then the following week is on singleness as a, as a good and viable option from the Lord. So he says, but I wish that all were as, I, as myself am, but each has his own gift. So singleness is a gift. But so is marriage. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. He says, so both options are a good and viable option um, for the Lord. But what Paul says here in verses three through four is revolutionary. It is absolutely revolutionary for women. One, one scholar said this about Paul's comments here. He says, the idea that sex was to be mutual <laughs> The idea that sex was to be mutual and that the husband owed it to his wife and that the wife had a right to claim it from the husband. That was revolutionary. It was unprecedented. No one had ever said anything like this anywhere else in the ancient world. Paul's saying, the scholar goes on, Paul's saying, the man has an obligation to fulfill his marital duty and provide his wife with sexual pleasure and satisfaction. Marital sex then is to be marked with selflessness not selfishness. And he says, that in and of itself 
was revolutionary in that day. So what, he's, what Paul's saying here is husbands and wives should seek to outdo their partner in serving and meeting the needs of their spouse. So, which then means sex within marriage is to be this totally self-giving, self-sacrificial love. Sex then is not about taking, which is the way that our culture talks about it. Sex is not about taking, but about giving. It's not about demanding, it's about serving. Sex within marriage is to be this totally self-giving love. It's about mutual joy and satisfaction. And listen, when that dynamic is in place in your marriage, when that dynamic is in place in your marriage and your sexual union, it will sing. It will hum along. And you know who actually needs to hear the biblical teaching on marriage? Sex within marriage? Who needs it more than anybody else? Our culture at large needs to hear this understanding. Listen to this quote. Seth Stevens, uh, I don't know how to say his last name, Daviditz. Daviditz, Seth, uh, Seth Stephen Daviditz. He's a former quantitative analyst at Google. He recently, he wrote a piece in the New York Times. And listen to what he says. So he's an uh, analyst for Google. He says, on Google, the top complaint about a marriage is not about communication, nor is it about finances. Well, then what's it about? It's about not having sex. The top complaint top complaint about marriage. It's not about finances. It's not about communication. It's about not having sex. Now listen to what he says next. And the search is as likely to come from a wife as from a husband. Searches for sexless marriage are three and a half times more common than unhappy marriage and eight times more common than loveless marriage. There are 16 times more complaints about a spouse not wanting sex than about a married partner not being willing to talk. Now, you know what all of that means? It means that the culture, our, the culture at large, needs to hear the biblical teaching on marriage and sex because it's much more robust, robust, it's much more life-giving on sexuality than anything else our world has to offer. The biblical teaching is actually much fuller, much freer, much deeper than anything the culture understands. And you know what affirms that? That's a much deeper, much more satisfying view than what the culture has? You want, to, you want to know what affirms that? Study after study. Study after study indicates that the most sexually gratified women in America are Christian women. Did you know that? Did you actually know that? Listen, according to a 2009 study conducted by the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, their study finds evangelical Christian women have sex more frequently and experience orgasms more often than American women in general. Why would that be the case? Here's why, they say. Their sex occurs in a protected, committed, love-affirming, selfless space. All the things the Bible says. Who would have known which means the biblical teaching on marriage and sex, it offers the deepest, wisest, and most satisfying view on sexuality that our world has ever heard. It's just, it's the best. It's the best view on sex in our, in our, that our culture has ever heard. Now look at what Paul says, and I'll close with this. I am really running out of time. Let me close with these three things. Look at what Paul says here. He says sex, being the powerful thing that it is, amazing. I could talk for an hour and you guys, all your eyes are still attentive here. This is amazing. We're going to talk about sex every week. New policy at TCF. Um, look, sex being the powerful thing that it does, it does three things for us in our marriage. Here's the first one. Write these down. These are the closing notes. First, he says, sex within marriage, it physically and psychologically unites us. Look at what sex does for us, Paul says. It physically and psychologically unites us. And again, this is backed up by science. It's backed up by science. Listen, Stephen Arterburn in his book, Worthy of Her Trust, listen to what he says. He says, sexual pleasure is one of the most intense human experiences. Physically speaking, when a man or a woman reaches sexual excitement, nerve endings release a chemical into the brain called opioid. Opioid means opium-like. And it's a good description of the power of this chemical. 
apart from a heroin-induced experience. Now think about that. Apart from a heroin-induced experience, nothing is more physically pleasurable than sex. This is, now catch this, this is a wonderful thing in a committed marriage relationship because it helps to bond two people together and bring joy to living together and building a relationship. So a married couple with, with a healthy sex life are bonded together physically, emotionally, and chemically with one another. So Paul says this is a good thing. This is why sex within marriage is such a good thing because it physically and psychologically unites us. Secondly, he says, sex within marriage protects us. It protects us. Um, Look again at verse three. Well, just skip down to verse five. Look at his advice again. He says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You see what he, he says here about sex within marriage, what it does? He says it protects us. Because we all know that sex is one of the, Satan's main targets of perversion. And if one spouse is continually sexually frustrated because the sex isn't frequent enough, it increases his temptation to wander outside of the marriage for sexual satisfaction. Now, if he does that, that's his sin. Let's not make any bones about that. That is his sin, no doubt about it. But it it will increase his temptation to wander outside of the marriage for sexual satisfaction. When there's discord in the marriage bed, Satan will seek to cause division and then devastation through temptation and lies. Which means, which means, sex within marriage actually wages spiritual war- warfare on your part. Sex within marriage wages spiritual warfare. Sex in marriage is a lot like oil in an engine. Without it, friction and the friction and tension of daily living will grind that engine to a halt. Without joyful, selfless, and loving sex, the friction in a marriage, the friction of day-to-day life will bring about anger, resentment, hardness, and disappointment. And then rather than uniting us, it will become a tool and will become a force to divide you. So you got to ask yourself, do you want to send your spouse out into this sex-saturated world with strength and satisfaction? Or do you want to invite division, discord, and temptation for your spouse. You see, sex isn't just about pleasure. It is about spiritual protection. And if you don't have as high of a sex drive as your spouse, as a legitimate act of love, according to Paul, as a legitimate act of love, you can engage in sex with your spouse as an act of spiritual warfare on behalf of your spouse and in obedience to God's command. Does that make sense? So, sex within marriage, Paul says it uh, physically and psychologically unites us. It protects us. And then lastly, what it does is it points us home. Sex within marriage actually points us home. Why? Well, think about the character of sex. Intimacy. Just deep and profound intimacy. Joy. Immense pleasure. So much pleasure, it will cause you to rejoice. Intimacy, immense joy, and deep and satisfying rest. Those are the characteristics of sex. And you know what they do? Those characteristics, they actually point you to the eternal delight of your soul that we will have in the new heavens and the new earth, where we will experience true and lasting intimacy with Christ. Untainted by sin and corruption, true and lasting joy in the infinitely fulfilling union with Christ, true and satisfying rest brought about by his selfless love, not ours. D.A. Carson, one of the smartest men in the world, speaks like seven languages, he's a theologian. In his book, Love in Hard Places, listen to what he says. He says, it is as if the only pleasure and intimacy in this life that comes close that comes close, just comes close. It's a fortis. 
It's as if the only pleasure and intimacy in this life that comes close to anticipating the pleasure of being perfectly united on the last day with the Lord is the sexual union of a good marriage. You see what he's saying? He's saying this is all, the sex within a good and healthy marriage, it's the foretaste of what life will be like in the new heavens and the new earth. Intimacy, joy, immense pleasure, immense pleasure, satisfaction, and rest. Those are the characteristics of sex. And they're just a foretaste of what life will be like in the next age as we experience intensely fulfilling union with Christ. And the most satisfying joy and the best rest brought about by his selfless love, not ours. So sex is actually a foretaste of what new heavens and new earth will be like for all of eternity. That's good news because I promise you, if you're in a healthy and good marriage, the sex within it is incredibly joyful. And you think to yourself, if I could, I could do this all day. That's the new heavens and the new earth. That is wonderful. Amen? You thought I was going to give you closing points about things to go do. I'm not. I'm going to leave that up to your imagination. So let me pray and I'll let you go. Father, we thank you for this passage. And we do pray, Father, for those of us who are married right now, that we would think about sex in the ways that you think about sex. And that we would um, consider these things and to the best of our ability, put them into practice, Lord. We want to send our spouse out into a sexually saturated world with strength, with vision, with purpose, and not let... Uh, the temptations overpower them, Lord. So help us in these ways. Help us to love and to serve our spouse to the best of our abilities. And ultimately, Lord, we pray that our marriages would bring honor and glory to you. We talked a lot about sex, but the sex is, is only the fuel for a healthy and whole marriage. And so we pray for the, our marriages, Lord, that they would represent you to the best of our abilities. And Father, we pray also for the, those in our room right now who are single or widowed. And this is not a, a, a viable expression for them. That they would sense deep in their soul uh, their union and their identity found in you. And they would be content in that in this season of their lives. So Father, help us. Help us go back into our homes with your grace, with your strength. Help us go back into the places in which we work tomorrow uh, with the joy of the gospel which fills our hearts and spills out through our lips and our hands in service to the human community. We trust you for these things. We love you. In Christ's name, amen.